sometimes I want to make something a metaphor because I'm it's too painful for me to talk about it in explicit terms. Or it doesn't feel interesting in explicit terms. Like it feels like <laughs> Hello, listener, and welcome back to another episode of your monthly Ernesty Fix Library Hours. I'm Reed Bryce. This episode, our guest is one of my oldest friends here in Los Angeles, and from before, I met her doing comedy in college. Andrea Whipple is a writer whose work you might know from the true TV series, Adam Ruins Everything. When I approached her to be interviewed for the series, it was initially to get an impression of how her roles in the entertainment industry function. Because Andrea is a magical person, someone, full disclosure, who has been a rock for me during the last year, of course our conversation diverged into something more meaningful than your standard, uh, how do you do it, professional profile. We get into what it's like to be disabled creatives, how to gracefully fight gross fat phobia in ourselves and others, and how to get back to feeling satisfaction in our pursuits by figuring out passions beyond them. Here we go with Miss Andra Whipple. I have really melty boundaries around like what I care about. Other, I feel like I'm always on the side of like, not if I said something embarrassing, but like what's embarrassing for me is like pretty much just like misusing a term as opposed to like, I'm not embarrassed as much about like being honest about mental health stuff. That's why that's one of the things I really love about you is that you've always been very open and honest about what you're going through because I have had times where my autism has like forms a shell over my emotions and and and, and I either like break the shell and it's messy <laughs> but you have been always been someone who can be inside of your own pain like that physical pain that can even manifest sometimes when the anxiety uh, is too yeah. bad and still tell people like oh this is what I'm going through at the moment and please please don't misinterpret this anxiety for what is like the material reality of the situation. And that's something I've always admired in, in, in you quite a bit, in your, especially in your leadership capacity. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you noticed and mentioned that because I think objectively that is true. But something I've been struggling a lot with this year has been how to communicate about all of that in regards to like, my mental health has gotten significantly worse and like the knock-on effects of like it triggering my autoimmune disorders and other kinds of things have gotten more painful and like you're talking about like the physical manifestation of pain like that has been coming up in big ways in my life Mm. and I've really struggled with first of all at what point at what point do I I have imposter syndrome about how severe my mental illness is which is like very funny and Uh, I'm sure I'm sure it's very common as well so you don't have to feel too like you know self-conscious about your (laughs) self-consciousness yes but I also like and it's and it's genuinely really it is it is legitimately difficult to tell like if you have spent your whole life which I think that you you probably relate to this a lot like if you spent your whole life trying to appear as like normal as possible right as neurotypical as possible to maintain yeah yes (laughs) and then the reality is very different like when you're alone and and what you do to maintain that level of neurotypicality or whatever you want to call it is like physically harmful to your body and your soul and your mind but like nobody else sees that you have to tell people that you're in pain and for me it's a very delicious or like it's a tempting idea to just be like I'll never tell anybody that I'm the extent to which I'm really struggling because I can I can pass and like there's a privilege to being able to pass yeah yeah whatever that nebulous passing thing is oh uh, I have I have a concrete example that I can give of why and 
uh, again, I, I got this a lot more from you that you just name what your needs are in life and, and, and we'll go into the, the put of it all uh, of that. But uh, the example that I can give as far as like what I had to translate to my like my, my working life was at my day job where I'm a video editor. Once I realized that people on the autism spectrum, but also people who have PTSD, these are core morbid things that often can even be mistaken for each other. And it's hard to, you know, get your final di- diagnosis. Yeah. One thing is they notice people with PTSD and then people... Uh, uh, certain people on the spectrum it just depends on like what your circumstances are sitting down for prolonged periods of time not being able to move your body that's why we're a lot of us are so fidgety people who are neurodivergent it mm-hmm. starts to actually cause real tension and real pain flare-ups in the body and i was somebody as a video editor you have to sit a computer and that's what you're expected to do for eight hours a day sometimes for me i it would extend into longer days if i was uh freelancing and i had deadlines it'd be 12 hours 14 hours and while it is not the same sort of physical exertion in any way as somebody who's like doing like hard manual labor over time that repetitive you know discomfort in the body was starting to aggravate my anxiety worse and so it was a, it was a, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy of mine that that like me being like, no, I have to try to just sit through it and be productive and not ask for anything. I didn't realize like, oh, I can ask for a nicer chair. And by law, uh, my, my work has to give it to me because it's considered an accommodation. They can't let me sit in a very cheap chair yeah. for amount, a certain amount of time. The same way that they couldn't expect somebody who's like a truck driver to just be driving on donut wheels and, and then having yeah. blowouts all the time. And and so when I told my my work like, hey, if I have a nicer chair, I'll be able to sit here and, and make the videos all pretty for you for a longer <laughs> amount of time. It's going to cut out of my, my goof off time where I have to literally get up out of my chair. But then I also told them, no, I actually do need to get up out of my chair. I do need to adjust my hours. I do need to start having harder limits with my work life and my personal life because if I'm not taking that time for myself, it's making it so when I'm showing up here for you, I'm also not doing my best work. And once I make sure that it's all about the bottom line, then they start listening. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I think that's really interesting because it, it brings up to me the like the curb cut phenomenon. Uh, oh, what's do that? you know what this is? No. So like basically it's this idea that people talk about in disability rights where like um you know for a long time our curbs didn't have those cuts where you when you're like going into the street when you're about to cross the street or whatever you know how it like dips down um, oh those those are uh those are more recent phenomenon those uh, are more recent and 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 what what caused them to exist is disability advocates being like listen we need to be able to use our wheelchairs and be able to cross the street like everybody else but it has this sort of interesting knock-on effect of like you and i who are not using wheelchairs find plenty of uses right for that yeah for it's, it's, like, it's, it's nice to have it when you're, you know, when you're taking like a, a suitcase across the street or something and you don't have to like yeah. pick it up. And then, and I'm sure for so long, those people just got pushback of like, well, you do you really need to go places that often? It's like yeah. that sort of like it's so icky and insidious for people that like for me that are what they would call like more able bodied or less disabled. Mm-hmm. And whatever the, and whatever those nebulous terms are, because uh, all uh, the majority of uh, my, my disability is all just cognitive. Uh it, it, it really I would not be able to have had that groundwork like you said uh the, like so it's, it's called curb cutting is what you, is what you said. so it's it's a phenomenon it's the curb cut is like just the thing but the idea yeah. of the curb cut phenomenon and I don't know if that's ex- officially what it's called but like or like the, phenom- think- the phenomenon is the right word because it's, it's it's a man-made yeah. uh, construction yes Whatever <laughs> it is, I think it relates to what you're saying though because but because honestly neurodivergent or not 
it's not really humane for us to expect anybody to sit in an uncomfortable chair for eight hours with very little movement. Like everybody needs to be able to physically stretch their legs or go out or just take a deep breath. Like everybody needs some sort of break yeah. mentally and physically from being in a workspace. And Whatever that looks like to them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing that is is really hard is that the people who are hurt the most have to do the most work and like push most for the things that are really going to help everybody like it's really going to help everybody if your workplace culture was able to shift more to the idea that it's not it's much weirder to be uh like <laughs> hardcore policing people's movements as opposed to just allowing people to self-regulate when they need to you know get up or whatever than it is to just like you know give the accommodations that you're asking for frankly to everybody right like yeah. they're helpful accommodations regardless of whether or not you're and and you might need them more they might need be you know extremely essential to you but they're helpful to just about anybody no i think that's really interesting in that term of like policing it's like uh, I, i'm always recently now thinking of like wait what ways am i being like the uh non-literal sense of a cop uh and, and or when is that happening to me like you know you think about like bad bosses who try to like over oh, like they're like how many times do you go into the bathroom and like there's so many circumstances yeah. where people have very legitimate reasons to be going to the bathroom like five six seven times a day just because you have one bowel movement june <laughs> right i actually so like i have a bladder condition that like has flared up really bad during covid and and so I joined a bunch of Facebook groups about it to like learn more. And there are so many people in there that are complaining about how their boss is like, this is the kind of condition that can make you have to pee like many times an hour if it's, yeah. if it's poorly managed. And the only way to manage it is really having good health insurance, good enough health insurance to go get physical therapy and like serious treatments, which I'm lucky to get to have, but not a lot of people get that. And so all of these people are talking about like, I don't know how I can work. I'm going to have to go on disability and it's totally fine to go on disability. And I encourage them to do what they need to do. But it's also like if their bosses could just be flexible. Yeah, because it doesn't mean that they're not somebody who is still the best candidate for the job when yeah. it's coming down to is a very negligible amount of time versus the amount of output that they would get if they weren't being stressed to fuck out over their yeah. over their disability you're you're then taking the person who is literally the best candidate for the job and then probably giving it to somebody who's less qualified but they would go to the bathroom less it makes no sense in, in like the actual literal sense of like who is qualified yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a very and it's a, just a very frustrating situation where like if the best solution for somebody isn't really to stop working entirely they might still have to do so just because they don't have good health insurance like that's yeah. so sad and and dumb and, and we'll worthless. and we'll just keep it there. Like I said, no value ju uh, judgment on anybody who oh, does need to go on disability. Because uh, 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 my full disclosure is my mother, when I was a child, that was something that we transitioned to was she realized that her, because she was also neurodivergent, but she also had uh, traumatic brain uh, injuries mm -hmm. that, that like, get, like pretty much rendered her to have like the sort of like mentality of someone who was in their early teens at the oldest. Like that's where she's functioning at. So it can make holding down a regular job very difficult so she that was a decision that she made was to get on disability yeah and which is great uh it's great but the government as it stands right now the state 
actually keeps these people once they are locked into the system it's like almost impossible to get out uh you're not allowed to have any sort of like fulfilling purposeful job that can be making you money because then you are uh going yeah. off of disability they, they lock them into this uh level of poverty because you are really not anywhere near what the middle class is is making you you are barely covering rent and your food and your expenses and like that level that they say is like good enough is not good enough in my opinion and no. so it, it's a very challenging decision to have to make of like is it is it worth having to withstand not having these accommodations that could be very easily put in place if people were just more understanding it's yeah. it's, it's that's a, I, I i think you're 1000 percent correct there but it's very funny that i'd be like oh i want to talk to you about uh, your experiences <laughs> in, in tv and stuff but i think the more interesting conversation to maybe be had as people who do a, uh, specifically comedy writing because yeah. you would still uh, say that your focus uh, andre and uh, andre and i met in college she was uh she was the leader of a, of a comedy uh, uh ba- basically uh a troupe it was really a lot more than just like a specific team that just performed together we did a lot of stuff around the campus culturally to make sure that the art the arts were something that were accessible <laughs> yeah. to all people that it was people who maybe were not like i can't go see some fucking russian play i barely understand i want but i still want to go out with my friends and have a good time i was going and seeing the russian plays that i couldn't understand that was how i had a good time <laughs> but some we, of us like them some of us don't yeah but andra was really a for a driving force and making sure that there were like you could go and have nightlife and like we didn't charge for it you know you ran comedy festivals that were super accessible you were making sure that um we were getting like big name people to come in but you were also making sure that like talent that nobody else would was considering like all of those voices were being seen and so like saying with uh, all of that background in comedy uh oftentimes as comedians and i wonder if if it's that same sort of thing and i and you can let me know mm-hmm. if i'm like being too woo-woo about it do you think us having to be comedians where we are constantly thinking like what's the joke what's the joke what's the joke is in our own way sitting in our own uncomfortable chair too often and and that's why i wanted to talk to you about outside interests and how to foster those because is that really like our only escape from our own our own not stupid (laughs) but our own hellish little demon minds that is constantly being (laughs) saying like how can this be content how can this be art whatever way that you're that you're framing it uh is that is that where the like the tortured artist comes from is like we're, we're really being our own boss and our own cop at the same time constantly <laughs> maybe yeah i i feel like for me the biggest place that that comes into play is like i i struggle so much with like my personal d- default if i if i wasn't being surveilled if i didn't feel like it was an extreme uh, like i was constantly being silently judged by people would be to be very 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 honest about my struggles my you know my emotional stuff uh, my anxiety um, my mental health but I and this is probably a surprise to people <laughs> this is probably surprised people because I do share a lot about that and I am very open about that but I police a lot of it for myself because I um, when will it become too much and and that yeah. sort of like uh, they got to look away they're they're they they you know Oh, I, I need to exactly maintain mean. some sort of image as like a fun person. And I, I struggle a lot with that. Like the comedic persona. And then also there is the, oh, but this is me when I'm being myself. But you're still showing that to people in a presentational way. And, mm-hmm. and so that that becomes a weird like quasi persona that is like some meeting uh, in between like the person that you really want to share as a vulnerable person, an artist. And then realizing like at a certain point 
that will be unpalatable and that will be less mm-hmm. productive and that will be less easy to sell to people. <laughs> and the weird the weird thing, especially as a writer who like literally has to pitch oneself in a meeting is like you do have to give as currency a level of vulnerability, but also you have to do it with such such fun such goofiness like i have perfected over the course of the years i can drop like a mention of my eating disorder in a meeting and make you laugh in like the same 30 second bit yeah because in a certain way you also have to uh dan telfer taught me this he is a really great chicago uh i think is where he came up initially but he's out here in la now he's a comedian who would talk about when in his class about like you have to always reassure the audience that you're safe if you're bringing up something dangerous you have to be like aha i have an eating disorder didn't die of it don't worry because i I come from uh you know uh we we probably have different circumstances around what what eating disorder is i am somebody who full disclosure if you're an audio listener i am what is considered straight bodied (laughs) probably the probably the only thing about me that you would ever call straight at this point <laughs> uh, but i and because i uh, i'm one of those people that doesn't look like they would have an eating disorder or you know i'm skinny whatever yeah. you know what i mean even me doing those qualifications is my way of letting you know number one that i don't consider myself an expert in eating disorders i only <laughs> know what my experience is like and two knowing that when i speak about eating disorders i one am a representative you're, you're an advocate but you yeah. also have to make it fun and cool and not scary to people so they'll want yeah. to actually learn about it well it's, <laughs> it's not even just advocacy it's literally like in a weird way like a selling point like as a writer if i'm in a meeting if i'm in a general if i'm anywhere if i'm talking and i'm in the context of being consumed which is basically anytime i'm like working anytime i'm meeting someone in the industry yeah which for somebody who has issues with consuming you're like oh god this is this <laughs> right? is very it's so, it's so this much is very it's very meta yes <laughs> but like i have to put out there that i have this unique experience of relationship with my body and because i want to be able to write about that and when and when opportunities come up to write about that i want people to think of me i want yes. to be like one of the first first people that that somebody comes in their mind like oh oh we have this character who has an eating disorder and she's fat like who knows about that well Andre talks about that all the time so she knows about that so yeah so it's it's like I want to do it I want to share that but but it's complicated because it, there are there are layers of like I'm doing it because I want people to buy it from me <laughs> yeah no uh, and and then you get into that sort of like, to what extent am I really trotting out? And that's why I try to make sure when people mm-hmm. come on my show that they don't feel obligated to it. Because at a certain point, you start to go like, what is the only thing that I'm productive of being able to do? And is is, is that just only talking about my own misery? And that becomes like <laughs> its own psychic, like hell and its own thing. Right. So <laughs> but you also like, I think you and I both are in positions where like, we want to talk about our misery because we know there are so many people in similar positions of misery that are suffering silently and 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 i know you and i have both probably had these powerful experiences of like being honest with somebody about something that's going on with us and having them just be like oh my god that really changed my life to hear you be honest about that i'm not necessarily as anywhere as uh, as an accomplished name in in like the in the biz biz (laughs) but whenever i do get any sort of like feedback if somebody sends me like a, a dm or a letter or whatever saying like oh it was it was great for you to talk about that i get self conscious because I, I I often want to be like oh first of all I'm always like paranoid about the parasocial relationship thing where I'm like mm. oh how much did I share of myself with you and I don't know anything about you that, that that's a weird uh, self-conscious yeah, thing but scary. then also I want to make sure like oh 
I, I hope whatever you just reconciled with yourself, you're ready to be talking. You're ready to be dealing with that. I can tell that you are because you're talking to a stranger about it. But <laughs> Weirdly, talking to a stranger is like the first step nowadays. Yeah. When you're like really struggling with something, you find somebody you barely know to be like, excuse me, I have a lot of trauma about this. Like, that's what it feels like sometimes. And it's and it's just very it's it's very strange. I mean, I really appreciate when people reach out to me and tell me that it meant something to them, whatever I said about my body or about my recovery or whatever. But it's also it's 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 just a unique experience to be living through recovering as yourself and be using the the sharing as like a tool of recovering but also like having to encounter people who are inherently triggering like there's it's just like a really yeah. it's a messy experience to, I was, to no, be honest I was, I was just gonna say one of the things in you that has helped me a lot in that sort of like you changed me sort of way <laughs> was not just in the confrontation because confrontation is the term of the self of like being like, can I be honest with myself with, with what I'm experiencing and get help for it? No. Uh, if, if that's what you need, if, if help is the right word, being able to have confrontations with those people that like you said, are triggering or are straight up creating an environment in which it's not healthy and it's, it's causing those issues to become uh, you know, uh, inflamed or to, or like bringing that up in other people. Like I know that you, uh, I obviously know Gordon Eatles or names or anything, <laughs> but I've I've read accounts of or, or you've shared with me times where you're like, oh, I was able to tell my boss that was not mm-hmm. that was not cool for you to be like either the content that they were writing or putting out there or just yeah. the way that they were talking to people. You you are very much a model of what I what I look at and go like, okay. Andre knows how to diplomatically tell someone when they're being an asshole. <laughs> and that's such a writer's room skill. Like that's being in a, being in a writer's room is learning how to tell somebody this is extremely fucked up without with a smile on your face and with them not feeling bad about it. Like, yeah. And it's really powerful too because, like, on the one hand, that might feel weird, and on the other hand, like, think of all the times you've messed up that that it would have been nice if somebody came to you with grace. Like, not that it's required, not that people have to come to you with grace, but if you can, it can sometimes help. And, you, and no, it's hard for me. It does because you've done it. No, I, I've lived it. I've lived Andra's grace where like I was like uh, over like stuff in college. Like you and I, I I've not melted <laughs> down at you like any recent thing. But like, you know, uh, uh, times where like you're working on a project, you know, we have a bunch of deadlines. We have too many things to do and too many variables and people just get grumpy with each other. We just like lose. Mm-hmm. We, we take advantage of our. I think that's a, one of the things about creative relationships is because you have so much vulnerability uh just inherent to the work itself that can become an over familiarity with each other not to be like talking like an old duchess but then you you take advantage and you start like being like snappier with each other or like more like demanding or you might be like oh i did not get a break from you it's just been fucking how we've been like oh man these marathons are terrible why did i do an overnight you know sort of uh, improv show like a marathon thing (laughs) which is fun but it also drives you crazy if you're the one running it (laughs) like those sort of things i don't think we ever did anything like that so i'm i'm probably even going even (laughs) further back in time and i comedy trauma on that stuff (laughs) (laughs) comedy trauma Yeah, we've uh, all got some. No, but like you've been someone who's been able to come to me and be like, Reed, we love you. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I think we live in a culture right now that I, and I really, really understand this. There are sometimes when people say something, for instance, like something fat phobic or whatever, and it, it hurts me so much that I have to respond tersely or with with frustration. Um you know, I, and I certainly empathize and, and agree that there's plenty of instances where people people deserve 
to to react with frustration and with terseness and anger anger is like really appropriate in cases of oppression where people are 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 frustrated and overwhelmed but for me personally i do try really hard to remember that like we're all living in a very fucked up soup and like a lot of people have never experienced all of the like terminology and understanding that I have done the research on and 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 made for myself so that I can better understand how to how to not be harmful in specifically in language around fatness like I I'm I still learn all the time and in every way but I have to remind myself every time like not everybody knows that like the word obesity like really fucking sucks to hear like not everybody knows that yeah um and I and I so I try and remember that like it's my 50,000th time telling somebody that I care about that this is like an extremely extremely cruel painful thing for them to say it's their first time ever hearing it (laughs) The Reader's Digest version, uh, and you let me know if I get anything wrong, is like, basically, obesity is a term that for a lot has been sort of uh, constructed into a clinical way that isn't usually, ironically, is not usually based in sound science. And it's a way to demarcate people as being healthy or unhealthy. And it's just usually based off of aesthetics. And and it's based (laughs) off of of things that typically, unless you're going to go down unhealthy routes, cannot actually be uh, managed in a way. (laughs) It's sort of like it's a medical euphemism that has been used to be cruel to fat people all over the world forever but not forever actually if you read about the history one book i would recommend is fearing the black body by sabrina strings it starts kind of at the beginning of the concept of fatness and how um she draws a lot of lines for how like racism and slavery and colonialism created this fear of of fatness and how it perpetuates to this day but but the point is obesity comes from the latin term to eat oneself fat, which is a problem just because that's like not true. Like if, if yeah, you really no, get into throughout the history, <laughs> during famine disorders. times, during famines, you would still see fat people. Fat people yeah. were starving to death. <laughs> if you really get into the science and a lot of people struggle with this because they're truly mind blown when I explain this to them, that's not how it, it, it works. It's not how your body works. So like it's an it's a pseudoscientific term used by doctors to make people's lives harder. And it, and it always co- it always feels bad. It always feels mean. It's not a nice word. And so the preferred term for groups of people is fat. Uh, for individuals, it's up to them. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. Uh, the intersection of race is because uh, it, it also affects the trans community very re- largely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we're two white people, so we will not get into it too deeply yeah. because you should just go and listen to, 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 to black people who are trans yes. or fat about what that experience is like. <laughs> yes. uh, but I will say I often try to make sure and not in, in a white savior kind of way, <laughs> but just in that sort of like uh, national park way, like wherever I'm going places, make sure I make it easier for the people. Maybe make I can create a trail to make it easier for people to get by if i run into trouble but don't make it worse for them don't make don't clutter it up with with garbage i try to make sure especially because i'm a masculine person and a lot of trans misogyny uh, you know it's baked into the word it comes from the the fear of uh, of the female uh a lot of trans women trans women uh black women are the ones who are getting it worse just you know to to make it not get gory about it uh i have to make sure if i'm confronting somebody even if I'm right and even if it's not cool of them when they get confronted about transphobia or fatphobia or whatever it is, yeah. if they dig in their heels more because I couldn't keep my patience and I and my life is a lot easier that I should be looking to people who are forced to have more patience, that's not cool of me. Uh, just in a, in, in, just in like 
It's not, it just is what it is. It's not fair to me that I'm not allowed the amount of anger that I want to express, but I have to know if I create uh, the angry trans stereotype in somebody's mm. head, they might then not let another trans person into the writer's room because they won't want to deal with them. And then I made it so that like maybe somebody who is yeah. more marginal marginalized than I did is not even going to be considered. And that's something that is like, I'm like, I understand it's just a shitty situation to be in, but it, I, I also have uh, places in my life where it's a lot less shitty. So I just got to consider that. <laughs> yeah, we just have to do our best. And I don't think, I don't think it's easy. I don't think there's a right answer. Like, I don't think there's yeah. a right answer to how to be able to, uh, because you should be able to re react with righteous fury and also righteous fury is a lot and doesn't always work it's not i try and think when i'm talking to people i just try and think about like winning tactics as opposed to like or not even winning but like yeah like what what will be effective as opposed to like what what will feel good to me which is all a whole other thing i could unpack in therapy that i work more on uh what works for other people than works i know for myself. and and like <laughs> How do we even like di like disentangle what productivity means in terms of like mm -hmm. what is you know what ends up being like uh, the the correct thing to do for ourselves and that's why yes. I think I think that is why I'm like okay so how do I get my mind out of here if I if I if my some if some, sometimes my battles that I get to choose are limited yeah. uh, what how do I like uh, choose these these things that are outside of it all together and that's why I wanted to talk to you about like uh, what what are you doing to stay to stay sane like what are your hobbies like. I know that you uh, were, were finally able to, Andra is a longtime dog lover mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and in recent years was able to be uh, uh, united with her beautiful pud, pud uh, <laughs> has been uh, having an animal in your life changed how you're able to function day to day. She's totally amazing. And what's really awesome about having a dog is like, they're distracting. They're beautiful. <laughs> a put uh, is a magnificent little creature. It's more. It's mostly body and then little little flappy feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a total mutt. And uh, but she looks a little bit like a corgi, a little bit like a terrier. She's all over the place. Also, I think she, animals are sort of like this opportunity to. She has had all these other other interesting effects, like all the normal effects. Like she gets me outside. She helps me go on walks. Like whatever. Because of her, I learned how to paint. Oh yeah, because I wanted to talk to you about that because yeah. you were you, you were showing off the painting and I was like, oh, this is something that uh, maybe you could be the painting comedian and figure out how to make that a pivot <laughs> brand you know whatever uh, force of capitalism but you know i you know i saw you making these beautiful paintings uh tell me about how how put was your muse for that yeah well really the whole reason it started was because uh i was supposed to get married uh during covid and that didn't happen but at the time right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, well, I might as well learn how to draw her because I was going to commission an artist to draw pictures of her that people could color at the tables. Oh, um, that's amazing. I love that. And I, and I am very <laughs> excited for, to, for that to happen yes. at the wedding because I am someone who is always looking for crayons on the table just by yes. that's what <laughs> who we I were am. Like, we need activities. We know our friends are like, are like they, they have a variety. Not all of them are dancing folks. Some of them are coloring folks. Some of them are and both. Weddings can get real boring real fast. And yeah. if the bride and groom are busy most of the time, you got to have stuff to do. You've been to enough weddings, you know. Yes. Yeah. So we thought that would be a fun an opportunity. And so I was like, OK, so I have to learn how to draw her well enough to make her for this thing. And then it was like, oh, I could actually it was a weird like, oh, I could save money because I, I would love to spend all of my money on commissioned portraits of my dog. And I was like, oh, I can just do those for pretty cheap and just it'll take me 12 hours to paint it. 
And, and there's a personal touch of like knowing, like if I'm sitting there at the table, I'm like, oh, this is Andra's representation of one of the things that she loves most yes. in this world on the day where she's committing herself to someone who she loves most in the world. And that's like a personal <laughs> touch, which, which like when you're doing weddings, it's a very weird thing of like, how do I stay within convention enough that people recognize it as a wedding, <laughs> but also make sure I have enough personal touches in that nobody will ever have a wedding like that happen again, which is a big yes. pressure that, 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 that people who are getting married go through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and even just having the paintings around my house like the pride of having it done by me as opposed to i have plenty of i have some beautiful pieces of art of her that were commissioned from other artists and they're lovely but like the ones that i did feel very special because i'm proud of myself and i look at them I'm like oh you that was you didn't know how to draw before uh a year ago like i was like a stick figure bitch and so like things really progress and i'm very proud of them this is a, a much less like accomplished sort of thing i was uh somebody who when i was a kid because i uh, at the time uh, if, you, if this is your first listening I'm, I'm a trans person so i i, I spent most of my life presenting and, and living as a little girl uh i was very interested in video games but i had uh, imposter syndrome because the, mm. the boys in my life my cousins my brothers they wouldn't let me play with them and so I was never able to get good at video games I mean I to this day and because my motor my fine motor skills are not always so yeah. good I have like weak fingers uh, I'll play them I you know and then my ADHD will kick in where I feel overwhelmed by anything and so I even though I suck at them I recently my friend gifted me his uh, my friend Nick Sahoya who's just like a darling he's a, another comedian his family had given him a new Xbox so he was nice enough to give it to me and I was like oh hell yeah i haven't had a, a, a video game console probably one that i own yeah that's been just mine like ever sitting down and practicing and i'm working on my fine motor skills and and i i, I feel so accomplished in a very stupid way <laughs> when i'm able to just beat a video game <laughs> no it's really it's important i think especially like it can really be engaging for your brain it's engaging for maybe making you feel more like yourself if you weren't able to do this as a kid and you always really wanted to no like, longer a fake gamer girl now yeah. i'm a real now i'm a real gamer girl <laughs> <laughs> and, and also it connects me to a new a media for like I knew it was already a, a media form that doesn't get enough legitimacy. But now yeah. when I'm actually doing it, I can understand people's connection to it because video games are that next step where like when you are passively watching a piece of art, mm -hmm. you're like just taking in what they're giving you and you're having your reaction. Whereas with video games and expect and I've been going to I've been finding the independent stuff, the stuff that's made yeah. by women, the stuff that's made by marginalized people. First of all, these stories that would never get to get told because they don't they're not gonna they're not gonna appeal to the guys who want to play Call of Duty all day. I'm having that same level of effectiveness in their work, but they're they're inviting me in a small way to be part of the process of how that story unfolds like my yeah. decisions matter they have weight and it and it causes this very like like deep affecting thing that like i only get from the best theater from the best comedy where i'm like oh mm. i feel i i'm feeling that connection instead of like just taking it in and maybe i'll process it and i'll understand it at some point <laughs> oh man that sounds beautiful i'm really happy i think that kind of connection that you just described is something I miss so much having gone a whole year without being able to watch like live theater or live improv. Yeah. And so if you're able to get that in your life, like that's so amazing. Yeah. And, and I know some, for some people it is very much like 
flashing lights or it taking a million hours or just like controls are hard or the subject yeah. matter is not something I'm interested in. If anybody wants like a primer on what this experience can be like, they're called usually um, walking simulators where you are. <laughs> it's a more it's like a it's like not quite a choose your own adventure story. It's a little bit more dynamic than that. But there's one called Gone Home. It was developed by a company called Fulbright and the designer is Steve Gaynor. And it's uh, basically it takes place in the early 90s. Uh, at the height of the riot girl movement this Ooh. this college girl she comes home from her first year of college and she's kind of you know in that se- that sort of way where you're like oh i'm i'm feeling disconnected from my family and i don't know what life is like when i'm going to go home is it going to be weird you know is is, mm-hmm. is it going to feel like a completely different place or will i still feel at home she has that sort of worst case scenario happen where she comes home in the middle of the night and it's a house that was not their childhood home. They moved into it. So mm-hmm. it's still got that ooky spooky to it. And the house is literally abandoned. Her her mother and her sister are, and her father who had passed away, uh, but they're just not there. And she doesn't know why. And so you spend, uh, and it, it, take, it, it doesn't have any jump scares. That's the thing I tell uh-huh. people. It's like, it's going to have feelings of foreboding, but you're not going to be like, Ugh, no, or you're not going to see something mm-hmm. that's like, like, oh, I, 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 I regret seeing this. You know, that, that yeah. when, like, it's not the saw effect. It's not trauma porn. Yeah. What it does, is it she goes through and passively just kind of inspects everything in the house mm-hmm. and she while having that sort of feeling of like am i coming home is this my home she also realizes how much she was not seeing in her sister because it's actually a queer coming of age story where she comes she comes across all these clues of her sister discovering her first love relationship with somebody uh who was another girl mm-hmm. and and, the, and i don't want to spoil anything else more but it was very much it had the same feelings of when i saw good feminist filmmaking for the first time where yeah. i felt sort of like you're uncovering a box of secrets and somebody else is letting you know in that way i think that when you say that that's why you want to talk about your struggles is you're mm-hmm. hoping to be that discovery to somebody someday yeah yeah, that's what that's yeah. what I love about it. Is like I I felt I was part of it, and I felt, but it felt voyeuristic, but not, but it was in a way that was <laughs> completely consensual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think uh, I would not have been able to do that if I did not force myself to go. I gotta stop letting my career be everything. Yeah, it actually has helped my art in so many ways. Because I went, okay, how do I step away from my own bullshit sometimes? The painting stuff that you do, your paintings are so beautiful. They have a lot of good <laughs> surrealism in them. I see a lot of, you laugh because you're like, it's my hobby. It, it, but I yeah. always love, I love it when I see my my friends who are brilliant and geniuses. And like like I, I tell all my <laughs> guests on library hours, I, I invite you on because I feel like you are the kind of people that I wish I had access to as a kid. I was only accessing Aww. them through books and media and stuff. Everything that, that you do, it just has that splash of brilliance to it. So I love looking at your paintings. <laughs> you had a really great one. It was all gerbil wheel, those those tunnels yeah. uh, that the gerbils have. And it, uh, it was juxtaposed in, in front of the of the observer for the painting. You would see this like labyrinth of gerbil wheels with these like really happy smiling faces on it. And then you saw a figure standing behind it uh, that may or may not be the artist. You know, it's up to interpretation. And you were not able to see her features and it really uh evoked some some uh surrealist artists from like the the 70s and shit for me i was loving it (laughs) it's fun i just started kind of doing those more uh emotional paintings and i have a couple more planned and i think what's really interesting about making them and then and then showing them to people that you know and who kind of know you and also probably interesting is showing to strangers but like yeah it's interesting to see the interpretations that people have of it 
knowing that it has a very specific emotional meaning for me and like comes from some of my like trauma work and therapy work but also knowing that like maybe it means something else to somebody else and maybe maybe the metaphor or whatever can help somebody else feel seen you know what I mean if they see yeah it. the death the, the, the death of the artist sort of uh, concept but like used to and it's not annoying thing of like arguing about what it is about it's just being like Oh, no, I just constructed something that by its own artistic merit, just by what it is, evokes strong feelings that don't even have to be congruent. And that itself is beautiful in that postmodern way and and that way of like getting like sometimes I want to make something a metaphor because I'm it's too painful for me to talk about it in explicit terms. Or it doesn't feel interesting in explicit terms. Like it feels like (laughs) if I'm explicit about it, you're like, oh, yeah, you have you just have like really bad anxiety, don't you? I'm like, yeah. And then people are like, are you on meds yet? And I'm like, it's a complicated man. Uh, (laughs) It's fucking complicated. Just look at the gerbils. Uh, (laughs) Just look at the gerbils. If we can leave you with anything as we wrap up our episode today, listeners, (laughs) I think it should be uh, let yourself find your gerbils, find your thing to do that is not what what your job is telling you uh encapsulates who who you are you're so much more than that (laughs) yes yeah yeah not to get get new agey and weird and you know weird about it and like be like now no now take now buy my book (laughs) (laughs) good news i don't have a book yeah and good news i made this free so if you don't want to pay for it you don't have to And that was my conversation with Andra Whipple. It really shines through in the interview how much I adore her. So I want to thank her and you for this time together. If this is your first listen to Library Hours and you'd like to support this show, please know that we have a Patreon you can visit. There are exclusive companion piece episodes, limited edition swag, and you'll be helping out a good cause. That's right, literally all the money earned on Library Hours goes to paying our guests an honorarium and the remaining profits go to Solidarity and Snacks, a mutual aid crew who provides much needed supplies to the people Skid Row in Los Angeles every Saturday. Go to patreon.com backslash library hours with Reed Bryce for more info. That's it for now. Uh, Listener, please do me a huge favor and take good care of yourself. You deserve it. Okay, bye.